0: Welcome to Trending in Education, Mike Palmer here, very excited to be joined again by Dr. Andrew Tempty, who is the president and global head of corporate learning for Kaplan North America. Andy was on Trending in Education in its early days. He's continued to do really interesting things, including writing a new book called Balancing Act, which is going to be one of the main things that we're diving into today. But before we get to any of that, I just need to welcome Andy Tempty to Trending in Education. Welcome to the show, Andy. Thank you, Mike. Really appreciate it. Love being here. Your book, Balancing Act, is in many ways a personal narrative. You're the protagonist in the book. You're describing the experiences that you had over a long and successful professional career. That's typically how we begin the show. We ask for people's origin story, but since that takes up 206 pages of a quick read, maybe you could give us an abbreviated story of how you got to this point in your life and what drove you to write the book.
1: One of the reasons why I wanted to write the book was my path has not been linear, and there are far too many people in this world who have either been convinced or have convinced themselves that life needs to be a set of B comes after A and C comes after B, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that if you're not following a linear path from high school, then to college, then your first job, and then the next step up and et cetera, et cetera, folks can get themselves all worked up about that. I wrote this book in a very Naked and transparent way. You don't see a lot of executives write in this fashion. Yes. Uh, be- because you want to tuck away the, uh-huh. the challenges and the bad stuff and put all the good stuff out for public consumption. Mm-hmm. But that's not how we learn. That's not how we grow. Mm-hmm. I-, I wanted to write a piece that really laid it all out there, let yeah. folks know that it's completely natural. Mm -hmm. to have loopbacks and challenges and winding roads that lead to whatever definition of success is. I talk a lot about continuous improvement, Mm -hmm. and continuous improvement is all about finding that next best version of a process or yourself.
0: It, It definitely comes through, and the voice is not the typical invulnerable executive Declaring what is true and telling you in a very assertive way, this is what it is. There is your confidence in there, but there is also almost more confidence in that you're able to show uh, a lot of your vulnerability and show a lot of reflection on some of the more difficult chapters of your life.
1: Vulnerability is a very large part of the book and is a management competency that I really want to get emerging leaders, younger leaders, and folks that have been around the block for 30 years to really think about. We tend to compartmentalize those things that were challenges and forks in the road and hide them But those things make me who I am. I wanted to be a rock star when I was uh, a teen. And Mm -hmm. I spent the better part of four years on the road with five other sweaty guys living in the same one room hotel room.
0: My producer is telling me the name of the band was Cry Wolf.
1: Yes, (laughs) that is correct. (laughs) Yeah. And look, we had a lot of fun. But there were so many lessons in that work that if I just pretend that didn't exist, I would miss out on a tremendous opportunity to help myself learn and grow and and then help others. Because Mm -hmm. if the chief executive of company X was actually a high school dropout, right. They would probably work pretty hard to put that in their past and Mm -hmm. focus their attention on their PhD or their master's degrees or whatever. Mm -hmm. I am a high school dropout and Mm -hmm. I'm not at all averse to saying so. And I say that not because I want people to think, oh gosh, he's a high school dropout and oh boy, that's terrible. I want them to think, wow, face real challenges meaningful challenges that he was able to learn and grow from breakthrough and find that next best version of himself. And gosh, I know people like that in my life that might be able to learn from that.
0: It's refreshing. And it does remind me of the Nelson Mandela quote that I I quote very frequently on this show, which is, I never lose, I either win or learn. When you go through those hardships, when you go through those challenges, that's really where the character development happens. The other thing that did strike me about the book is that a lot of the trends around teaching character development is very much focused on K-12. What I found somewhat inspiring, and we'll talk about inspiration in a bit, but what I found somewhat inspiring was that you were incorporating character development and the importance of an ethical compass and balance to the corporate setting, to the idea that if you are a leader in industry, if you're an executive, there are ways to develop as a whole person that frequently aren't discussed. This
1: concept of real active listening and mindfulness, and especially the concept of self-reflection. You were just talking about character and how do we build that through time? A lot of people imagine that character is fixed and set, Mm -hmm. After some period of time, and that character can't be changed and nurtured. The old phrase, a tiger doesn't change his or her stripes. There are some aspects of our fixed selves and our fixed nature that are, are just part of being the human that we are, but there are a lot of components of who we are that can be nurtured and grown over time. And just because you're a 57 year old leader with a 30 plus year career behind you does not mean that you can't take meaningful steps forward. Yes, they might need to be in small chunks because our mental agility and our mental flexibility, it gets harder and harder to do, but it doesn't mean that we should somehow stop. Uh, trying to find that next best version of ourselves.
0: Frequently, there are other things that you can contribute, which I did pick up on throughout the book, which is just your perspective based on stories or examples from your career or your experiences that span quite a range of years. And that was something that made me reflect a little bit on where am I finding these sorts of insights? Has this always been your process that you're reflective and thinking about how to consolidate this into something other people can understand? Or is that storytelling element, which you talk about a lot in the book, is that something that you've had an aha moment and began to cultivate a little bit more?
1: Fortunately, storytelling has been a big part of my life since I was a young boy. I tell a story in the book about being Arnie in the production of I Remember Mama, I was I don't know 10 years old or so and here I am on stage with a bunch of college kids and you can just imagine how impactful something like that is. I went on to be a singer and then get into academics and really flex my my muscles as a teacher and then as an executive I found that storytelling is absolutely essential but the piece, Mike, the piece I didn't put together until, I don't want to give anybody the the sense that it was too late because it wasn't, Mm -hmm. but I spent far too much of my life imagining that the world of work cared much more about the technical skill that I brought to the table Mm -hmm. than the blend of the technical with the behavioral. I actively avoided anything that dealt with trying to really discover what I was feeling inside. I spent a lot of years putting things on the shelf and it it all came out in my late thirties and early forties as a train wreck. Frankly, Mm -hmm. my wife and I got divorced and I had convinced myself that you can just shove down those feelings and Mm -hmm. shove down the behavioral side of things. And And it it all come out in the wash. It doesn't come out in the wash. It comes out in really unproductive ways. If I'm teaching anybody anything through this piece is to really get connected with yourself much earlier in life and build those muscles of self-reflection, of Mm -hmm. holistic storytelling and not just the convenient parts, but... the whole thing within reason. We don't want to come into the world of work and have sob stories and burden right. our coworkers with things. There's situational awareness and mm-hmm. emotional intelligence that you have to bring in to all of these conversations. Leaders need to lean a lot farther toward the behavioral side of the equation than we are today.
0: I've heard it described as human plus skills. We're all going to need the human skills and then layer in some technical expertise, maybe even multiple technical expertises, because our work lives are going to be much longer. Just being in your mid-50s is going to be right in the middle of a long career arc over time, and uh, it's going to require a lot of reskilling, upskilling, playing with your head up. What I think is interesting, just to double down on your point, is that frequently when you think about reskilling or upskilling, you're not thinking about the emotional tooling or the sort of psychic reserve that you need to be an effective leader.
1: Just before this
0: conversation, I was doing
1: some writing on resilience. I've been doing a lot of thinking about our egos Mm -hmm. and how our egos sit at the nexus of a lot of these human skills. Ego is a very misunderstood terminology. When we hear the word ego, we think about the guy or the gal who needs the door widened so that their head can fit through. But that's just the evidencing of other human behaviors, unproductive human behaviors. The other part of the ego is that bit of ourselves that mediates between our ideal view of ourselves that was built for us by parents, church, school, mm-hmm. just societal expectations. So there's this ideal of ourselves. And then there's that bit of ourselves that we were born with and is our base needs,, yeah. and our impulses. And what's really at the core of a lot of these human skills, is this concept of a strong ego. Yes. And having a strong ego is a really good thing because all the concepts that we've just been talking about require the ability for somebody to... I I introduced the concept of a half halt in the book and Mm -hmm. you just take a little bit of a step back, you take a breath and allow the space for your ego to actually mediate between the part of yourself that's just going to spin wildly out of control because those are your base feelings and and your base position Mm -hmm. and the anxiety that's driven by not meeting the expectations of some unachievable version of oneself that that you want to try to attain. Having this strong ego is essential for mindfulness Mm -hmm. and situational awareness and emotional intelligence.
0: I didn't realize there was a psychoanalytic angle to balancing act, but in many ways, the ego does have to balance those forces. And that is a theme that you hit on throughout where there's always a risk that you almost over-index in one direction and we're in an age of extremes. I was struck by your honesty as someone who really pursued those extremes and then learned the danger there and then was able to maybe stay more balanced from that point forward. Can you talk about that? Maybe touch on entropy? I have
1: conversations with educators all the time. There's this concept of multidimensionalism that comes out in the book. And I was talking to an educator a couple of weeks ago about multidimensionalism. And this gentleman said, for all the people in my class, I tell them to, you know, focus on one thing and get that one thing really right and be the expert And I'm like, that's very 1990. Let's open our minds to the benefits of being multidimensional and being able to look at a problem in different ways, not just being about one thing, Mm -hmm. because when, and this is just my experience, but when I've been about one thing, just business or just this or just that, as I say in the book, it's a formula for disaster and opening up one's mind having that mental agility yeah. is essential. You brought up the concept of entropy. My version of entropy is very simplistic, meaning yeah. in the end, everything falls apart.
0: This is a law of thermodynamics there, right? Like you're backed up by a century or two of science. Yeah,
1: yeah. But my definition is so simplistic. I see. The uh, scientists sometimes get mad at me. Andy, entropy is this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, no. In business, it is the concept that a system, any system, if left unattended, will tend toward disorder versus order. Mm-hmm. You simply cannot expect a team left yeah. to their own devices to somehow build trust, become cohesive, have structure around them and create excellence in outcomes it just
0: doesn't happen. I'm the proud father of a 2-year-old so you don't need to talk to me about about entropy. So that's why I was bringing it up just in case you had any advice. But yeah, things tend uh, towards disarray not just in an organization but also in the household when you when you have a, a small child. The other thing that I thought was useful in the book is there's a lot of tips and a lot of frameworks that people can can pick up on and maybe start to hang some of their thinking on. There's an acronym, or I think technically it's an initialism, TCMI, which at first I was trying to decipher it. I was thinking it's TMI, but what's what? too much information? What does the C stand for? But it's not actually that. So can you walk us through what TCMI is?
1: Almost 10 years ago now, I was formally introduced to the concepts of continuous improvement and organizational health the concept of continuous improvement everybody thinks it's wildly complicated it is so simple mm. it is identifying and eliminating waste respecting your people and having a maniacal focus on your customer and the focus on your people that's where organizational health uh, comes in developing trust within teams and over communicating and creating clarity but the concept of teach, coach, mentor, and inspire, it came together in a meeting that we were having. And I just really latched on to to those four words. And and ultimately, they became the headline in my standard work. I see. I, I started waking up every day saying, as a chief executive, the main part of my existence in this organization is to teach, coach, mentor, and inspire. Mm-hmm. There is no do <laughs> in there. There is no take over for everybody else if things start to fall apart. Right. Uh, there's none of that, and it's a wonderful mental frame for a manager and leader to remind themselves yeah. over and over again. That's your job. <laughs> yeah. It, it is not to solve problems for everybody else, but in the coaching part is yeah. to help lead others to the answer and. Mm-hmm. To develop formal mentoring relationships where appropriate and to always take the role of a teacher. The inspire bit is a little trickier because I don't think I've ever been successful when I've woken up and said to myself, I'm going to try to inspire somebody today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. But if you're continually teaching, mentoring, and coaching, the likelihood that some level of inspiration is going to happen within a 24-hour period just goes up naturally.
0: Yeah. I was struck by how in many ways you're looking for that inspiration in others. You talk a lot about the light in people's eyes where battling the real challenge of disengagement and being checked out. So I think there is a level of, and I'm going to try not to analogize to the fact that I have a two-year-old, but there's an element of always looking for the hopeful part. Of folks' narratives. I think Reed Hoffman talks about how you want to allow people to be the hero in their own narrative. In a lot of these cases, it's it's really letting go of many of the old trappings of hierarchy and command and control. How have you been able to navigate that? Again, in the construct of
1: balancing act and being too far on one side and too far on another side of a spectrum, I was a command and control leader early in my career. There was one way to do things, and that was Andy's way. There was an epiphany that I had in the late 2000s, right around the time of the Great Recession, where folks would come to me and with the phrase, Andy said. (laughs) Nothing happens in this company without an Andy said Mm. attached to it. Mm -hmm. And at first, I was like... Oh, that's kind of cool. And then as I started to open up the box of organizational health and continuous improvement, I was like, oh, this is not good at all. (laughs) It took me quite a while to bend the arc from command and control to a more balanced approach because there is such a thing as too many cooks in the kitchen. When everybody's in charge, no one's in charge. There are places where decisions have to be made. And as a leader, you have to be decisive and and then expect everybody to come on board with you. Mm. But gosh, those command and control environments, especially in larger organizations, as the company grows and everybody's looking around going, oh gosh, did Mike approve of that? Is is this something that's going to be a Mike said? If it's not, then I don't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. That just breeds that mistrust uh, within the organization.
0: Mm -hmm. And you can see how that could slow things down too. where your previous point about waste, if everyone needs to get the official order from on high to do anything, Suddenly, you're dealing with backlogs and chains of email. Too is the other one that I wanted to maybe get a few beats of your rants on email.
1: The, the sub chapter prior to publication was called "Email is the Devil." The
0: editors strongly recommended that I change it. But the devil's legal team is tough, so I right. think that was they, a they smart are. move. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> they are. They're really difficult to work with. The whole point of that section. Is really talking about one way communication devices. Mm -hmm. I give examples about how Susie and Billy would literally be sitting next to one another in cubicles. And I'm sure you've seen this in your career. Yeah. Never get up and talk to one another, (laughs) uh, firing off emails to one another. Early in the program, I mentioned that my wife and I were divorced. We're now happily remarried, by the way, but we were divorced in our 40s. And Where this really dawned on me was during the therapy process and the process of rejoining where these unhealthy behaviors of, oh, I'll just pick up my phone and I'll send Linda a text message and I'll get my point across. Zing. When you do that, when you do that zing, you might as well just stick your fingers in your ears and do the hear no evil thing because it's one way. It's your message to that individual. And there's really no way to respond in a healthy fashion. Look, email is great. It's going to be around for a long time, but it is great for corporate announcements and stuff where you got to have large audiences here, all the same thing. Yeah. But man, it can really cause challenges when you're just sending barbs and jabs. And replying all yeah (laughs) yeah don't get me started oh
0: my god so that's a whole nother that's probably a podcast in and of itself not even an episode as we're getting closer to wrapping up here andy i also wanted to get some of your reflections on who should pick up this book and why should they
1: The book is a business book, and there is some heavier-ish business terminology. It is also, at the same time, purposefully designed to be very approachable. When I do use business terminology, I try to break it down into its very simple component parts so that nearly anybody can pick up the book and, and get something from it.
0: Yeah, and I'll just real quick, I'll vouch for that too, because it does come across as in your heart of hearts, you're still uh, a rock star. So it's more like through the perspective of, I have to do these other things, but uh, there is an authentic soul story that you're telling throughout the book that really does resonate. But but anyway, please continue. I want
1: this to be a multi-generational piece. I, I want Gen Zers to pick it up. And I want millennials to pick it up and I want my baby boomer friends to pick up the book because it literally has something for everybody beyond the age of really 18 or 19. So if you're an aspiring leader, if you're an individual contributor who may want to lead people in the future, this book is for you because it'll lay out a whole bunch of landmines that Andy Tempty stepped on and made a big mess from that you can learn from. All the way to an individual who's in their early 60s, who's yeah. thinking about a career change and wants to adopt a more mentally agile, active listening, modern management stance. Mm-hmm. This book is for that individual as well.
0: I will say from this general Xers perspective, there was plenty to learn. As we're concluding, Andy, if folks want to learn more about the book or if they want to, to get a hold of the book, what should they do? Where should they go?
1: The book gets released on April the sixth of 2021. It's already available for pre-sale on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and several other digital outlets. You can buy it in hardcover to keep around forever, or you can get a digital copy on your Kindle or your Nook. You can get the ebook or the physical hard copy. I, I might add the cover is phenomenally beautiful, you're going to want this thing on your shelf because people are just going to go, wow, that's a really nicely done book cover.
0: It's a balancing act in many ways, getting a book like this out. The name of the book is Balancing Act. The name of the author is Andy Tempty, who's uh, a real guide for many of us who are trying to figure out how to navigate leadership and our roles and our ability to balance our professional lives with our private lives. And we didn't even get into some really great insights around navigating the post-COVID world. But Andy, thanks, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's always great to talk to you. And for our listeners, uh, we'll be back again soon if you like what you're hearing. Subscribe, tell your friends, this is Trending in Education.